Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Welcome to episode number 14 of the New School Video Podcast. As per usual, it's me, Candice, as your host, with Meg as my co-host. In this episode, we got to speak to the co-founders of Wistia. So if you don't know Wistia, they're like the cooler business version of YouTube. You should totally check them out. They've really been leading innovation across video hosting platforms, and they've come out with some really cool tools like hosting for podcasting, and they make our favorite tool for advisors to make video, Soapbox, a Soapbox by Wistia. Chris Savage is the CEO and Brendan Schwartz is the CTO. So Wistia has been around for about 15 years. And personally, I learned everything I know about video back in the day from their blogs. I've been to what used to be their epic conferences called Wistia Fest, and I have been a fan of theirs from day one. In this episode, they talk about how they got to where they got to, making mistakes along the way to come up with elegant solutions that actually worked. So how they actually thought about and did that, but also like the essentials to creating really epic, meaningful video. I couldn't be more excited to have them as guests. Let's get started. Chris and Brendan, we are so excited to have you, both the co-founders of Wistia, I think the best video company out there, arguably, I would say definitely <laughs> like the coolest. But I was super excited about this because as I mentioned in our prep interview, way back when, I think plus eight plus years ago, I learned everything I know about video from the Wistia blogs. Quite frankly, I'd go into the video store with my phone to buy gear and I'd be like, this is what Wistia told me I could buy. <laughs> and the guys in the store would try and convince me of other things. And I'd be like, no, no, that's not what they said. We're going to get this. <laughs> and because of that, I actually, we're now coaching advisors across the country on how to show up authentically on video. We, I'm directing on-site shoots. And I actually got a lot of feedback that has helped my career from Adam Lissagor because of Wistia Fest. So that was the conference that you were able to hold. And across all our DIY video workshops, our number one tool that we promote when we're on webinars, when we're coaching, when we're speaking, is Soapbox by Wistia because we buy, we think by far it's the most elegant solution. So thanks for being here. Thank you thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It's also quite an, pretty quite an intro. Yeah, very <laughs> kind words. Thank you. Well, it's all true. Because <laughs> we get asked the question all the time. What gear do I need? What do I need to do this simply? And everyone else is talking about all the fancy stuff and all the big post-production and those types of resources. And we're like, no, no, no. It's called Soapbox by Wistia. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because it's like, it, it's, it seems like you should be suggesting like crazy gear and all that. That's what everyone assumes is what's holding the back, right? Um, from making great video. And obviously it's like, no, it's like, how authentic can you be? 
can you do you need to sit in front of a window to like make the light on your face like flat and look good or like it, what it's very simple things go get you so far um and it just doesn't seem like that's actually possible so yes it is we try to recommend the simple helpful things that can get people confident on camera and I think you do an excellent job of that across all your product suite. And I think we always talk about how simplicity is the hardest thing to do. Like whenever we've got an idea, we're pairing it back, pairing it back, pairing it back to be as simple as possible. And I think you do such a phenomenal job in that. And specifically with Soapbox, we're always kind of amazed by it. How do you think about when you're creating all your product suites being really effective, but simple and intuitive like how do you how do you think about that what is your criteria for like pulling back and ensuring whatever you put out is as simple and effective as possible that's a very good question i i think some just like where the root of that is is a lot of mistakes early on of uh making products and specs for products far too complicated just to have nobody use them it's uh, a pretty hard lesson to learn and we were talking about right before, like doing this for 15 years, uh, having simple products, simple systems, simple, like simplicity is challenging, but if you can get to that, it is a lot easier to keep uh, building than when you have something that is really complex from the start. And Soapbox was really fun to work on in that way. In some ways, like uh, Chris was kind of saying, it was a distillation of a lot of what we had been advising and teaching people with video. And we thought, is there a way to make a product that could reinforce some of these things? And so some of that is like you can see in the in the one take nature of it, that forces you as a user to be a little bit more casual, right? Like if you, you, you have to kind of understand and know your message um, and deliver it. And you might make a few mistakes during it. Um, and so I don't know if I'm answering this question directly. I think it's just you have to be willing as a company and product organization for things to take longer and to kind of pay this price of simplicity. Like it, it takes active work, right? And sometimes it takes building things and then destroying them because they are too complex or you've added something that doesn't really make sense. And when people build things that they're proud of and that, you know, look great and that people use, it is very hard to get rid of them and remove them. Um, but that is the difference, I think, between simple products and complicated products, being being willing to do that over time and, and have that compound. Mm -hmm. And you've been in business for 15 years. Congratulations. You just celebrated your 15th business anniversary. And one of the things that I've learned about Wistia, which you sort of just validated, Brendan, but I want to underscore it, is that the simplicity and the ease of use and sort of to use Candace's word, like the elegance, but simplicity of your products hasn't come at the cost of innovation, right? Like you've still been giving yourself permission as a business to think big and to try big ideas and to, you know, not worry about how that impacts the bottom line of the business, but to make sure that you've been able to maintain your creativity and your passion around what you do. So like, Talk to us about how at Wistia you balance all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, there's like a few, there's a lot in there. I, I think the first thing is um, being, trying to be clear about what risks are actually, like when you take a risk, if it doesn't work out, 
it will actually negatively impact the business and which things are like perceived negative impact. You know, this analogy of if you have a boat, if the business is a boat, there's like risks that are below the waterline and risks above. Like the ones below where if you make a mistake, like the business thinks, like you should be very careful and you should take your time and you should well research like what you're going to do. And you do have to take some of those risks, but be ready with like to patch the hole. And then there's the stuff above the line where you can go much more wild. And so we try to be really clear about those things. But like as Brennan's talking about, one of the risks, like if you break the product, you don't have anything, right? It's it's that fundamental. And so um, it's like, I think the way we've thought about it there is like having simple components that people can understand what those components are and what those components do and adding more power over time and constantly asking when we're adding something, how can we also simplify? And one of the deceptive things about Wistia, the product is when you get into it, it doesn't, it looks like a folder system. Like it doesn't look like there's a lot in there. And then you realize you can customize the player, like do it independently. You can build channels. You can take the data and integrate it in your marketing stack. There's so many different things you can do that are hidden beneath the surface. And it was, it's been a lot of work to build it in that way versus like if we're trying different content campaigns, marketing campaigns, we can take enormous risk uh, because if it doesn't work out, no one sees it. And I feel like that was like one of the things that clicked for us over the years was um, the worst thing that happens when you fail, when you're trying, you know, a big campaign is just that it no, literally it doesn't work and no one sees it. In which case it, it didn't really, it wasn't even like you took a risk. And so um, we think about that a lot. And I would say the other thing I would give the example of, uh, we did this feature length documentary, 110100 um, mm-hmm. about the sandwich team. And, you know, for those who don't know, it's we gave them $111,000 and then they made three ads for us with different budgets. One with a $1,000 budget, uh, one with a $10,000 budget, one with a $100,000 budget, and then we document the process. And so there was a lot of ways that that risk could pay off. Like one of the most fundamental was we're going to learn from sandwich and our team is going to go learn from them. And if the content's a failure, at least we'll have learned something. And then it was, oh, this is going to be, we're going to have a feature like documentary. So some people may actually connect with that and some people may not. And then the trailer for the documentary itself was its own content asset, which either could take off or not. And then the actual ads they made for us, um, those could work or not. And so you end up with this place where there's like seven different ways the risk could pay off. And if one or two of them hit, you'd probably think it was a success. And in the reality, in that case, like almost every single thing worked. And so it was just a massive, massive results. Um, but that came from that idea of, all right, we can take a lot of big risk here. And how can we, one way we could offset it was actually adding more risk into it mm. um, and more ways for it to pay off. Mm. I think what one, go I was say what, uh, that we, we didn't say, which I think is important too, is simplicity is one of our four core values at Wistia. So in some, it's very baked in to the culture, which I think has everybody thinking about ways to simplify. And some things are work well. And then it's also, you know, everything's a balance. It's like, it's a challenge internally that um, sometimes the figuring out ways that we can push forward and innovate do come at the cost of simplicity. Mm-hmm. And then those are... It, it, it's nice to have that conversation out loud, right? To to talk about that in in ways that um, that can can manifest, um, which is. But but I think it is having it as a cultural value uh, is what has 
especially in the product organization that people like designers, engineers are, that's very top of mind when we're building new things or looking at features that are, you know, underutilized. Brenda, can you give us an example of like when you're innovating and potentially it come, it's something you're innovating on and it's come at the cost of simplicity and what that conversation looks like. And I'll tell you why for context is we obviously are working in the independent wealth management space and the leaders are digital first, leading with authenticity. And it's still considered very kind of risky. And there's a lot of tension around that. And I think that there's a sense that it is the right thing to do. It's the more human connection. It's what consumers want. And also juxtaposing it with how the industry has traditionally been. I see. Uh, one, this is a hot button one internally right now. So if you're listening from Wistia, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. But uh we launched uh, added podcast functionality mm-hmm. into the product uh, last year. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, we have, Chris was referencing kind of the internal structure of the product that we've had well, pretty much since it launched this project system. And there, in order to support podcasting, there was all this extra information that you need, you know, the name of the podcast description, all this metadata episodes carry with it more information than just a video file or an audio file. And so we had this conversation internally about how to, whether to kind of lean on the existing structure or make an existing one. Um, and that was a, a long and, and winding one. We, we ultimately decided in order to make sure we could build the best product to support podcasters and podcasting, we built a new structure but that came at the co- comes at the cost of simplicity because now we have two things in the product, and so this is an unresolved issue. But I would say that the cultural um, focus on simplicity keeps bringing that back to the surface, which I think is a healthy conversation. And um, one thing I think about a lot with this is sometimes you don't know what the right answer is, and I always imagine you're walking, I don't know, walking through the woods in, you know, peaks and valleys. And sometimes you're in a valley and you can't see very far, right? And you know, in the future, you'll climb up the hill and then you can see a little bit farther. And those are the points to make those decisions. So it felt like when we were embarking on adding podcasts into the product, we didn't, you know, we knew, we did a lot of research. We talked to a lot of people, but we didn't really know how it would feel to have it in there and to understand that as an organization. And so the peak is once that product is launched, it's in market, we're living with, you know, these two systems, we can make better decisions about what the future of the structure of the product is at that point. And so we shouldn't try to spend, you know, endless hours trying to make the right decision because we don't have all the information. So I don't know if that's, I don't know, I don't know if that's helpful to connect to what you were saying, Candice, but. I think it is. And then the question that comes to me, which we were wondering, and as soon as we saw you launch the podcasting tool, we're like, we're on it. We don't even care where it is. We'll test it because we want to be able to see all the functionality. I've seen a lot of YouTube steal all the Wistia functionality as well. Why podcasting? Yeah, podcasting was just basically like we talked to a lot of companies that were making video and video, as you know, like it can be hard until you figure it out. And then it's like not hard and that it could be very easy. And I think one of the recognitions that we've had is like what our audiences want has changed. You know, it used to be that um, we kind of like took the content that was sitting there waiting for us, but we didn't always expect to be able to engage 
in different ways. And now I think like, you know, if you go to the New York Times, for example, you can read, you can look at the interactive graphics, you can listen to the podcast version, you can watch and you get to pick. And I think the uh, we're switching to a world where the audience is in control. And so they can decide, do they like to watch or listen or read or skim or what? what is the way that you should communicate with them? And so podcasting was pretty natural fit for us because if you're making a lot of content, um, I would guess that there's a percentage of your audience that is like would prefer to listen while they're working out, while they're commuting, once things are normal, as that's starting to happen again, while they're on long road trips, what have you. Um, and like life and work has been intermixed. So it, it made a lot of sense to us to add podcasting. We realized we were investing a lot in it. It didn't mean we weren't going to invest in video. It meant that like we were going to do those two alongside. Um, and then we talked to a lot of companies where the people who were responsible for the podcast, the same people who were responsible for the video. And so it's simply like we can give leverage to our customers. We can bring the same marketing tools we built for video to podcasting. Um, and so that's, that's kind of why it made a, a good fit to get in there. Audience is in control. I love that framing and it's so true. And I think that for some entrepreneurs, maybe that maybe it's specific to our world within the independent wealth management space, maybe not. But that can be sort of scary for some entrepreneurs who just aren't natural marketers. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not in control of this. So how do I manage it? How do I strategize for it? How do I plan for it? And so one of our jobs and what we feel is like a great responsibility and we really enjoy doing is educating the market on the opportunities that exist. If you can just sort of flip the switch, it's not that simple, but really if you can get into the right frame of reference and be really aligned in like why you do what you do and who you do it for and the change that you're trying to create and aligning those decisions around it, it actually, it becomes quite empowering for the audience to be in control because they're who you're selling to, right? So you guys do this every single day. You've built a business on video and now podcasting. You know, what would you say to those people who might be a little bit nervous about how to leverage some of these mediums or might be a little bit nervous about, you know, the audience being in control? Like, what do you think the greatest opportunity is today for businesses to be showing up on video, on podcasts, like where do you think yeah. the greatest potential that maybe that's untapped or that should just be like doubled down on? Yeah, I mean, I think a huge part of the answer here is just like, what stage are you at? And if you aren't doing anything, if that's what you're saying, um, then I think you want to get close to a small number of people who are your target and you want to know them really well and you want to understand what's holding them back. And in my experience, I think it's true in, in basically every business, there is something that if you spend 30 minutes with your customers, you're going to end up being able to help them with. Um, Some insight that you have from your product or service, um, something that comes up consistently. And it's often things that come up in conversation. It's things that come up in conversation because they aren't just easily, the answers aren't easily available in a blog post or in a guide or in something else. So I would look really closely at like, qualitatively, if you were to talk to 10 or 20 people, what what are the consistent things that those people want? And then you can start to try to figure out about how you want to engage with them. And um, it can be simply, you know, doing webinars as a start and having it mostly be Q&A. Um, if it's a more specific problem that is consistent, if you're, if you're 10 to 20 folks you're talking to have something that you think is universally applicable, you can start to get in front of it by writing the guides, by making soapbox videos, um, 
by just recording a screencast. Like I, but I think that the, the key thing is starting really focused and really small because that's often where we get tangled up is we think we're going to make a video and it's going to be seen by a million people and the message has got to be just right. And if those million <laughs> people are going to see it, I'm going to make sure that if they've never seen us before, they're going to understand it. If they're advanced, they're going to, you, you put too much pressure and that actually is what stops you from unlocking that this isn't about one video. It isn't about going viral. It is about like figuring out how to let your audience best engage with the problems and challenges and opportunities that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do that, you start creating that value. It can be 20 people watching. And there's actually, a, we talked to a lot of customers like this, that they start and, you know, 20 people watch the first thing and then 20 people watch the second thing. And then suddenly there's people asking you know, for the third. And it do, it doesn't take that many people for the interaction or the connection to be strong enough to like to move the needle for your business. To start small is it and the fear, like Chris said, the fear of being on camera or doing something wrong in our experience is some is a big thing that holds folks back. And even for ourselves, like thinking way back to when we started uh, shooting video, the person who leads our production sent a text to me the other day with like a clip of me in the first video that I was ever in. And he's like, why is your voice so deep in this video? And I, said, I was so nervous. I was absolutely terrified of being on camera and being in this video. But I do remember at the time that, they, you know, it was not a high stakes video. It was something for like a small launch that we were doing. And that was like, help me get, I was like, well, this isn't really going to be seen by that many people. It's people I kind of know already. And one of the beautiful things about this, like Chris is kind of saying is that, when you have compelling content and you're speaking to a niche audience, the audio, it will compound. And you're saying, Meg, like when the audience is in control, like that is how it can spread and grow. It's very unlikely that uh, you shoot one video or record one, one episode of a podcast and suddenly you have an audience of, you know, even thousands of people. And I feel like that, at, le- at least for me, as someone who was very nervous about all of this from the start, which I imagine other folks are, it's like this gradual and you need to start and you need to keep building on it and you'll get positive feedback from people who like love and are passionate about the thing that you're talking about. Basically answered my question. Cause I, what I was going to ask is, did you have that alignment and confidence when you first started? Chris did more than me, I think. Oh yeah. Just, yeah, just <laughs> incredible. Uh, no, I mean, everyone's nervous. I think it's just like, I do think we live in a different world now, right? Like every, we had to be on zoom we had to show our homes. Like we had to bring people in. And like, I think that that has reset um, how to think about like, what is okay? What is professional? What is a professional brand? Right. Um, And that's a good thing. It's like leveled the playing field, but yeah, it was super stressful at first. And uh, uh, cause it, it felt like there was so much power. Then you worry, worry, worry. And you make something that's seen by 30 people. God damn it. Like, why was I so stressed? <laughs> and then one of those people's like, now I'm a customer because of that video. And you're like, what just happened? Like I was horrible in that video. Um, and I think it's just, we, we underestimate the power of a relationship to a, to a brand or to a company. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's ultimately what you get to do when you start making videos for your business. Um, and once, once you unlock it, it's like you see everywhere, all the places you can add the relationship and the impact that it can have. But it, yes, it is stressful to start. I love, uh, you know, everything you just said and what I'm, what we're usually coaching advisors on. And 
you know, here's the reality. We don't coach anything. We're not practicing ourselves. So we've made, I, last year I looked, I made 500 soapbox videos. It's a well, lot. Pretty good. <laughs> 500 soapbox videos. And when we're coaching, I'm always like, listen, authenticity is going to trump production value every single day. Like I would love to get a soapbox video from Jeff Bezos at his desk, just riffing, giving us an update on Amazon. Do you know what I'm saying? How mm -hmm. much would we all be blown away by that versus something that's highly produced and scripted and what that looks after? Um, so that's something, and we're saying like, you know, often you're in meetings and if something happens, you don't say, hold on a sec, if there's an interruption, we have to start from the beginning. You just correct <laughs> yourself, right? Yes. And just keep going because the authenticity, the realness is really what connects your audience to you. And your phrase in this is resonance over reach. Yes. Resonance over reach. Exactly. And it's the idea of like, you can have a really, you can have a small number of people you have a very large impact with. And if you can do that, you can create a connection. You can create an affinity to your, to your brand. Um, that is extremely powerful and people focus on reach and uh, they focus on reach for lots of reasons, like because anything we see has lots of views on it usually, right? Like because it gets shared around. And then if you're a marketer and you want to spend money on advertising, then you, the measure is often page views or views of the thing or whatever. Um, but we really, we're huge believers that if you can focus in on the core fans, the core people, the core customer, and have a much stronger connection with those folks, what ends up happening is you have, they have more brand affinity and they bring other people into the fold. Like they know the other people that are going to be interested in um, your company and your brand. Um, and it's actually about getting more targeted and more niche. And when you go too broad, then you're just, you're competing against everything. It's funny because it, it seems counterintuitive, but because the internet, like the internet's changed our culture so much you know, everyone's been, you can go on Reddit and find a subreddit for literally anything. Absolutely, you know, weird, broken, old car subreddit. You know, it exists. And you know, there's people who are like, I found another weird, broken car. Should we fix it up? Should we do, you know, like, is this a good buy or whatever? And like, um, that I think that part of the power is that because we're so connected with each other, things that were really niche are actually still really large numbers. Mm -hmm. And so, that's like a, it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Like you find the more targeted you get, the more likely it is that you'll have other people who want to connect around that thing. And then if you enter that conversation, they will bring you the other folks who are going to care. Yeah. And we preach that in terms of like for our advisors, thinking about it in terms of like the smallest viable market. So mm -hmm. like how small could you get to be the most viable? But when our advisors come, they, they get quite confronted when we're talking about really targeting their who. Like when we say like really targeting their who because they feel like that's going to have an impact to their bottom line. Yeah, well, you know, we just did this content series at Wistia called Show Business. Mm -hmm. And it's this like 20 video series on everything from conception of a show to production to marketing of the show, nurturing an audience. It's like, I, we think it's pretty universally interesting, but it's also really designed for someone who really wants to get in there on the nitty gritty of like, what does it take to produce and create a show? Um, and then we're looking at the people who are coming in and signing up for it. And they're like a, a lot of folks. And then there's like a ton of people within this group that are just exactly the right customer for Wistia. Now we didn't make this and say, this is the exact target Wistia customer, 
but um, by making it focused enough, it's resonating in that group and it's making it extremely easy for it to, to have a huge benefit on the business. And yet it's like, it feels like a, you know, it's a 20 video series for someone who would want to make a show. It sounds intimidating. And, and the result is actually, it selects for people who really care about this. And so as a result, it's having a huge impact. That's why this conversation is so important universally, but specifically within our industry, because, you know, as Candace mentioned, these advisors that we work with do often feel quite confronted. And I often tell people, you know, if you're out there telling the world, I do all things for all people, you're effectively saying you do nothing for no one. But there is this sense of vulnerability of, well, two things really. One is if I narrow my market too much, there just won't be enough business. The second is if I narrow my market too much, I risk alienating some of my existing clients who I really love, even though they're not necessarily like, you know, my ideal client. And so I think that one of the things that we love so much about this, this new school podcast is the opportunity to bring people you know, really accomplished, experienced professionals like the two of you from sort of outside the industry and to be able to give our viewers, our community, the insights of people like you who do this every single day and help us just to validate, you know, we're not crazy. Like this stuff actually, it's true and it works. And the power of referrals in our industry is so strong. Most financial advisors grow primarily if not entirely through referrals. And so I think, Chris, some of the points that you made about how this brand affinity can actually help people find people just like them that also need your service. Um, you know, it's just such a powerful message for financial advisors because it's we're not trying to say like, forget about referrals. It's more so just about, we all know that we need to market. We've got some headwinds in the industry. We need to take control of our message. We need to own our brand. We need to own our presence in the market. And we think that there are better ways to do that. And also it will augment all of the work, all the referrals, like all the strong brand affinity that these advisors already have. Yeah. I don't know if this is a helpful anecdote, but this reminds me of when we were very early on, you know, when we started Wistia, our for the first company who used our software, and this is we were doing started with private video sharing, was a medical device startup uh, who was sharing surgery video of surgery securely. Then the next people who signed up were uh, video production companies who were using it for that. Then we had uh, sales training. We had all these different use cases, and we as product people were so excited and proud that we had built something simple that could be used by all these different places, and we we're confronted with this same piece of art. We just, you know, nothing to nobody. Uh, and we were like, no, like we have these, you know, grand vision, like you can't put us in a box. Like, and we basically didn't really understand how marketing worked. And we met um, the CEO of FreshBooks, which is, you know, small business accounting software. And he was asking us what our business did. And we're going on and on about all these different, he's like, what are you saying to me? I don't understand, like, who is your best customer? And we said at, at the time it was marketers, um, you know, because they love the, the analytics that we had in the product to be able to see which parts of the video people had watched. It really resonated there. And he said, just say, you, OK, say you're for marketers. And we're like, but, sir, what about, their, you know, like you said, we're going to alienate this person. We're going to alienate that person. He's like, those people use your product. They know you. They like you. They understand. They'll still refer other people. He's like, we have people who use our software for, you know, who are outside our target. That's how this 
works. And we took that advice and we started, it was very uncomfortable at first because I think as a business owner, you have this, you know, self image of mm -hmm. you want to be unique and great. Um, and you still can be, but to have, I think like you're saying a simple message about who, who is, what is your unique, uh, uh, value to the world doesn't undermine the fact that you can still dabble in lots of these th different things and grow and transform. But that was a, that was a hard one. That was, I don't know what, like four years, five years into the business for us where we finally made that leap. Yeah. It's also just funny too, because like we thought, you know, we were communicating so clearly to the market what we did and obviously we weren't. And I think everyone runs <laughs> into this problem that they think like, Oh, they're going to get really focused and now they're going to turn everyone away. And it's like, take an honest look at your website and what you're saying. Like you may not be differentiated at all, but like the reason people are connecting with you is because they're talking to you. And so it's, it's often like a lot less scary to get targeted than it, than it appears. Um, yeah, actually it, along the same lines, like I remember we were trying to figure out our pricing and we're like, Oh, we could change the pricing on the website really easily, but we can't change it in the product very easily. This was a long time ago. We're like, all right, let's just change it on the site and see what happens. And so we changed on the site. No, no customer noticed no existing customer because like they're already in the product. And people didn't even notice when they got on the product and the price was different. We're like, what is going on here? It's like, how is this happening? And it's like, oh, because it's our business. We worry about it all the time. We know every detail. We're really concerned. But for a customer, they're busy. They got stuff going on. They're not spending all day on your website. Like, it's just not how the world works. And it's even that's even more the case today. So I think it is almost like if you're not going to get targeted, it won't work. Like, if you can't get focused enough, you can't differentiate because no one can tell who you're for or what you care about. When did you realize you had fans? And by anyone who's listening, like I think I've been to Wistia Fest. It's very clear people who use Wistia are like raving fans. And I and I think when we talk a little bit about when we circle back to this idea of resonance over reach, the only way you get resonance is if you're being authentic and you're being who you are because people yeah. can feel it on the other side. And I know you have the story of like how you decide to people started respond, responding to the one page on your website was that was the most authentic. But when did you make the connection or connections of when we show up like ourselves, people really dig it. And, and yeah. when did you realize that it worked or how it worked or what was that like? Yeah, there were a few moments that kind of happened in succession that made us understand what like that we should be authentic and you know we we're a few years into the business we we're trying to present ourselves on the website as being very professional because we're for businesses so we thought we should be professional so our team page was like you know long by there's four people in the company long bios <laughs> oh all of these like accolades and blah blah it was blah the, like, it was the management page not yeah, the management that's right it wasn't called a team it was a management page <laughs> and then we'd hired two more people so we we're six people in the company but four people on the page and we were feeling bad basically like no one was on this page. No one cared about this page. Um, so we thought we should update it so that the two new employees, like they could show their friends and family where they worked. That was basically like the impetus. And so we took, we still tried to keep it business, uh, businessy, but we took a photo this time. So we're going to put ourselves on the website and we stood in front of a whiteboard, six people took this photo, took three versions of the photo, actually like a serious one. And then like two silly ones. <laughs> and then when we were building the page, um, Brendan just realized that he could take these alternative versions of the photo and that could be the Easter egg on the page. So when you typed dance, it would just randomly switch between the three photos of each person and would play music. 
and this was just for fun for ourselves. It was basically like, no one's ever going to see this page. Uh, it's useless because we just, we'd been presenting ourselves so professionally and no one mentioned it. It was like a wasted page. Um, and so he did this and we put it on Twitter cause we were proud of it. We probably each had like 50 followers. Uh, and it just took off and got shared a ton and tons of people saw it. And I was like, wow, this is so silly. This is so crazy. This is so ridiculous. Um, and at the time we had a two week trial for the product and two weeks later we had a bunch of pay, paying customers, like just like popped overnight. Like what is, this is crazy. Like we've been trying so hard to market this product and we're getting basically no one. And then, you know, it's just a slow, steady pace. And then we have this like team page and now we got like more customers. I think we had more customers that two weeks after than we had gotten in like months before. Um, and we did it again. We made like a behind the scenes video of the team. Again, nothing to do with the product, just silliness for ourselves. Put on the site, exact same thing happened. Like a bunch of people saw it, they connected with it, they were excited about it, they came in, they bought. And we're like, this is different. What's happening here? Like, we thought it would be bad if people knew we were six people, but the opposite, it seems to be happening. Um, and then we thought, what if we do a event at the office? And so we'll just see who wants to come and learn about video. And we put it on Twitter again. Now we probably have 150 followers. Uh, it's like things have gotten pretty exciting. Uh, <laughs> and we said, we're going to have an event at our office this Saturday. You should come if you want. It's free. Just like sign up on this like Eventbrite or something. And that was like a Wednesday. He had no, we had no idea how many people were going to come. And I think like 40 or 50 people came. And that is the moment I think that we realized like, wow, there is, there's something different here because of us showing the behind the scenes, a little bit of how we are building the company um, and the excitement from people to actually be able to be getting answers directly and like talking to us about how we were, sh he had shot that video and what things we were thinking about next it all just started to click. And so we just started sharing more organically the stuff that was going on and what we were learning as we were doing it. And then we started to get more comments from folks asking questions about specific, and it just like built and built and built and built until eventually now I think you go to the Wistia website and you see people left and right. You see people in our ads, you see people on social. Um, and the brand is an extremely human, authentic brand, but it came out of that, those early moments when we realized that that was why people cared. And that was enough for them to investigate what the product was, and what the business was. And you, yeah, that, whatever is below, way below D-list celebrity, right? Z, you know, triple Z-list or something. That was the feeling at that early event where someone you don't know comes up to you and says, oh, like, hey, Chris, like, hey, Bernie, because they had seen some of the videos and they used the product. And that is a very bizarre feeling the first time that happens. And I mean, that's the power of content marketing and video and audio specifically that you can build a relationship with somebody. You can do that at scale. And that's like back to the resonance overreach that, you know, if I listen to a podcast for 20 hours, I feel like I know that person. They don't know me. They don't, they, you know, not, not yet, but that is a really, that's a really powerful thing was a very bizarre moment. But then like Chris said it, like it, it kept compounding and gave us more confidence that we should keep being ourselves and not be afraid to do bizarre, weird things. 
as a business, as a B2B company. <laughs> and there's an interesting part to the story too about that page, the management page, right? With the overly professional descriptions. You guys wrote a blog about it. <clears throat> and part of that had to do with going or being invited to go meet with the CEO of MailChimp, right? And I loved reading about the feeling of like, what is he going to think of us? We're a team of four. And why is he having us fly down to meet him and just having the confidence to get on the plane and go? And you get there. And the way that I read it was the CEO of MailChimp had already decided that he was going to move everything over to your video hosting solution. Um, And you guys are sort of looking around like, Okay, you know, and I love that story so much because I think it resonates for any small business owner, entrepreneur. You start out and you have a certain vision in your mind, but it takes time to build that vision. And the truth is, you're always building towards that vision, always. And then the vision sort of shifts and it evolves, and you're shifting to meet market conditions and to build the culture and to have the employee experience and all those things. But, you know, I thought that that was so powerful because thinking that you have to show up in a certain way automatically just eliminates any room for authenticity because you are taking away the vulnerability and you're taking away your truth. Um, And so I think that that's just a really powerful message after that, after those experiences, was it easy to maintain the discipline of showing up authentically or was it something you sort of like, was it also a discipline that as you built the business, you had to make sure you were constantly paying attention to. It was like, as we were scaling, we would ask ourselves a lot, you know, because our marketing, so much of the brand was that authenticity. We, Brendan and I would say like, well, we're doing this new thing. And like, we, we have to figure out, you know, what the cultural impact of this will be. And we have to figure out how to scale these parts of our company because they are so integral into the brand and we don't think we can fake it. I mean, it's almost that simple. Um, so, I mean, I think the way it gets delivered, it changes a lot, like as the company grows, right? Like you grow, you grow from five people to 15, it's a huge change and 15 to 30 is a huge change. And, you know, as it, as you go, there's like jobs are getting more specialized. Things have to be more codified and like written down so that people have the freedom ultimately to be authentic, um, to be true to your brand. Um, and yeah, it was, it was like stressful until it wasn't, until we realized, oh, actually, this is who we are, and it's easy to tell if we're doing it right or not. And so we just have to help um, give feedback and give examples. And if we can do that, then like the, the brand can evolve and grow and still deliver on the same promise. I think the, the world keeps telling you, though, not to do it, I think. like in, And it was helpful to have a lot of that early evidence. It's helpful to have you know, a co-founder, right? You can remind each other of that, but there's so many things, you know, there's the, what got you here won't get you there, right? Which is true in a lot of cases, but that's the same thing that like everyone struggles, right? With some amount of self-doubt. And, you know, when we were a 50 person company, that was the first time we were ever that big, right? So someone who has more experience comes in and say, you know, it's like pretty cute that you're doing all this like funky stuff over here, but you know, you got to start to you're a big company now. You got to start to, you know, Paul, you can't do this or do that. And then you start to question little pieces of it. And I think it is, even with that early, uh, that early evidence that it works um, and you keep getting that, it, it like creeps in in other areas of how you run the business or do things. Um, 
that is like, it's really helpful to have people who remind you like what the core part of your brand is and to like, and to lead with authenticity, I think. When I imagine it's a loop, right? Because you're demonstrating that as the leaders and the co-founders of the business, you sort of get that back in return. Um, And I know that we're coming to the end of our time together and I wish we had a lot more time to talk, but I loved reading about um, and learning about what you did to raise debt to be able to buy the company back and have complete control and autonomy over the decisions that you're making. And to me, that's just like another demonstration of your discipline and your commitment to how you've built the brand, um, how resonant it is, how much it's built on authenticity, um, which I think is super powerful. So, I mean, maybe just a few minutes on what's the most impactful outcome that you've experienced since raising that debt um, and and buying back full control of the business? What's what's the most impactful outcome that you've experienced at Wistia? I mean, when we did that, we, we knew we would, it would force us to be profitable. And, um, you know, it's pretty hard to have a lot of debt if you're not profitable. Uh, <laughs> and, and we were not profitable when we first did the deal. And our belief was if we were profitable again, then a lot of these like long-term creative, hard to measure things would become easier for us to invest in and trust in. Um, and then we believed that that would compound over time. And that ended up being like extremely true. Um, and it also centered everyone back who joined the company, um, in, was in the company to be centered on ultimately like, how do you build a good business? And it comes from this very simple old school saying of you make something that you, people pay for and you hope that it delivers enough value and then you use the money that they pay to hire people and then hopefully there's some left over. It's like an old, it's an old school mentality, but it um, was actually really helpful to like have that be embedded in the day to day, right? And the, embedded in how we think about decisions and the risks that we're taking and stuff. And so it just allowed us to have that profitable confidence again and um, to be true to ourselves. And there's a lot of stuff to your point of like how you close the loop. There's a lot of stuff that we do that is designed to make sure that we stay close to everybody as a company scaling. Like Brennan and I do Q&A with every team every month as an example and try to cover like any topics, any questions that they have. And that's like such a simple thing, but it'd be incredibly easy to not do it. Mm-hmm. And we do it to like make sure that people have the insights and that we are sharing feedback um, and that we're closing that loop. And it's, the t- again, the type of thing that would be hard to do, I think, if we were growth at all costs, because we'd say, like, why does this, why does this matter? Um, but for us, like, having that full alignment is just so important, that, and it's easy to make that investment. And so, yeah, it's, it's really just, like, we realized that for us, our market, the time, the things we were trying to do, the things that differentiate Wistia, like, that would allow us to deliver on the brand. And I think that's ultimately what you have to do. It's not about, like, raising debt. It's about looking at your own business and saying, how do I set this up so that I could be the best entrepreneur possible? And if you could do that, then you win. Um, but it's when you're trying to be someone else's version of your of yourself. That's that's when it's it doesn't work. Yeah, that's where we've made all the all the mistakes that we have regrets about have been in that mode where we're trying to do something we think somebody else wants from us. And the places where places where you make mistakes, where you are doing so authentically and, and with your style of leadership. Like those don't hurt as much. And those are places where, you know, you learn a lot. So that like the independence and authenticity are very connected for us as we think about the business. 
I wish we had much more, much more time. I think it's a testament. We have just such good guests. We could talk forever. I know this is probably stuff for you that you talk about every day. For us, it's so exciting. As we close out, we'd love to ask you just one final question. We ask all our guests, and that is, what does the new school mean to you? Yeah, to me, it means like, what is the new way should we should be learning? Um, and what is the new like rubric of like systems that we need to operate? Um, and so if you can, if you can reevaluate and constantly be learning, um, then you can be on a different trajectory. I would say, yeah, I mean, as entrepreneurs, like we're very, you know, oriented towards the future and the things that are most inspiring to me are folks who are, you know, cutting new paths and doing things in ways that is, is different than the status quo. So when I hear new school, I think of, you know, reinventing things that are, you know, they're established wisdom, but, but challenging that and trying to find a better path and one that, that fits for, for you as a leader or entrepreneur. Thank you so much for coming on the new school. It was such a treat for anyone that's listening. Where can they interact with you? Um, you can find us at wista.com or on Twitter. I am C Savage and Brendan is Brendan. That's right. <laughs> Pretty good Twitter <laughs> handle. <laughs> and, uh, Chris, you have the Talking Too Loud podcast with Chris Savage. Um, I just listened to the Sawhill Lavignia episode oh, from Gumroad. I mean, everybody who's listening, please go listen to that and, and subscribe. And also the content that you're producing Cross Vistia, you talked about the one, ten, you know, hundred project. These other, um, all of the content that you're producing is really such a powerful demonstration of everything that we talked, we discussed today, and all of the wisdom and insight that you shared. So, for our listeners, I encourage you, if you're not already, to please follow everything that these guys are doing. Tremendous leaders, obviously, in the technical expertise that they bring, but beyond that, from a business and leadership perspective, I find um, I'm getting even more than I anticipated from both of you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has been amazing. Mm -hmm.